Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The first letter of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1 this morning. Uh, Over the years, hope has always practiced Advent, which is four weeks of waiting, which is four weeks of a sort of figurative uh, fast. It's a fasting season. Um, but as a church, we have never really practiced Christmas tide. Christmas tide is really 12 days of celebration, of feasting. If Advent is fasting, Christmas tide is feasting. And we've done one, but we've never really balanced it out with the other. For most of us, Christmas is over. Christmas is over. It ends on December 25th. Uh, but did you know that for most of church history, Christmas doesn't end on the 25th, but begins on the 25th. Uh, and it doesn't end until January 5th. Uh, some of the kids who are listening in right now are probably asking their parents why they uh, didn't let them in on this secret all these years. Because 12 days of Christmas sounds pretty good. 12 days of Christmas might mean 12 more gifts. Uh, but technically, this is the first Sunday in Christmas time. Now, what I usually do, if you've been with us for a while, is I preach on this Sunday on a topic relating to the new year. I even call it my New Year sermon. Uh, but I was talking to Aaron Badenhop, who will be preaching next Sunday. I'll be uh, taking a vacation this coming week. And he had the idea to bring Christmas into the new year. And so what we're doing for the next two weeks as a church is we are going to celebrate Christmas into the new year, which is actually kind of kind of an old practice. And so we're basically catching up with uh, those who came before us. We're going to do Christmas tide right. But not just to follow the church calendar. That's not the point. The point is to bring Christmas or the incarnation into the new year. The point is to celebrate, to party, to feast, to have real joy in the incarnation. And to do this, we are going to read the prologue in John's first letter, the first four verses. Again, let's take a look at this text. I'll read it. I encourage you to follow along as I read. We'll pray and we'll see what God has uh, to say to us this morning in his word. This is God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest or revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Oh Lord, would you speak this morning for your servants are listening in Holy Spirit. We need your empowering presence. Open this word that is sitting on our laps. Open this word up 
to our hearts and to our minds so that we would not just learn new information, but be transformed by your power and by your word. Lord, have your way with us this morning. We submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't know this about my family, we love the Franklin Park Conservatory. We just love it. We go there as often as we're able. Um, And each year during Christmas, they light up their outside park and they call it Conservatory Aglow. And some of you might have gone to this in the past. It's become a tradition for us to go uh, every year. Well, this year we didn't make it before Christmas. But my wife did score tickets for this Monday. That's tomorrow. Yes, we are talking like days after Christmas. We're going to see Christmas lights at the conservatory. And it just feels wrong. I'm just speaking personally. It just feels wrong to me. I remember when she said, hey, we got tickets, but it's not till Monday. I remember thinking, but not saying, ah, I don't know. Christmas is over, right? I don't know about that. See, my whole adult life, I took down the tree. I I took down the the, the decorations as soon as I could after Christmas was over. See, once Christmas uh, is over, I start to think immediately of the new year. I start to plan. I start to make resolutions. I start to do more of this, to do less of that, uh, to cut out this in my life and to cut out that in my life. And I start to plan. I start to think about what is coming ahead In other words, for most of my life, and I wonder if this is true for you, I have reversed Christmas and Advent. Advent is a season of restraint and fasting. Christmas is a season of celebration and feasting. But for most of my life, I feasted during Advent, the build up to Christmas, and I fast during Christmas. I start thinking, what can I give up? So not literally, but figuratively, I have reversed these two seasons. The weeks up to Christmas is supposed to be a party. And the weeks after, the party's over. That's how I've usually gone about it. And I think we all do this. For some reason, we have done away with the wise and the ancient practice of making the Christmas party last longer. I've always thought my wedding reception was the best party that's ever been thrown in the history of parties. I wish it lasted longer than it did. And I think there is wisdom every time I see in the scriptures that these weddings lasted for like weeks. I think there's wisdom in that ancient practice. I wish the true could be the same could be true for Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus, that amazing thing, is worth celebrating for days and days and days. The ancient church recognized this, which is why we have 12 days of Christmas, which is like one long, big party. And so what if we took their advice this year? What if we celebrated Christmas well into the new year? And then what if we partied in the name of Jesus each and every day until January 5th? And then, and then what if we actually took that celebration further into February and into March? What if our joy spread like leaven into whole of 2021? Our joy out of the incarnation. See, the incarnation of Jesus should not just be reserved to one day a year. It's worth celebrating every single day for a long, long time. If we think Christmas is over, I want to say Christmas is never over. Why? Because the incarnation is everything. We can see this if you just read the writings of John in the Bible. 
Remember, John called himself the beloved disciple. We can learn a lot from that. John understood himself as two things, essentially. Committed to Jesus as disciple and loved by Jesus as beloved. Committed to Jesus and loved by Jesus. That was his identity. And it should be yours too. John wrote the gospel of John that we have. John wrote Revelation that we have at the end of our Bibles. But there's three letters kind of hidden in the back of your Bible that are also written by him. But do not neglect them just because they're hiding in the back of your Bible. Because in them, John hammers home the point over and over and over and over again that Jesus, the eternal one, became Flesh, that Jesus became a real human. He makes that point over and over and over again. See, for John, the incarnation was everything. In fact, he was writing against false teaching that was happening. These false teachers were denying the incarnation in various sophisticated ways. I've been using this word this morning incarnation, Uh, but let's make sure we understand it so we know what John is arguing for. Incarnation literally means in flesh, in the flesh. It means the eternal word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, in the words of John. Uh, In the words of J.I. Packer, the late theologian, incarnation means the man, Jesus, is truly divine, and that the divine Jesus is truly human. Did you get that? The man Jesus is truly divine, and the divine Jesus is truly human. See, folks were starting to question this, uh, but John, the apostle, says, stop. The incarnation is everything. It is so important, and we see it in this first four verses of his first letter. These first four verses are actually, in the Greek, one sentence. It's a concise but powerful statement about the centrality of the incarnation. For John, again, the incarnation is everything. Why? Three reasons. Number one, the incarnation brings real life. Real life. And number two, the incarnation brings real fellowship. And number three, the incarnation brings real joy. I want to look at each of these. So let's first look at real Life. And when we look at these, I want you to see them as an invitation to celebrate Christmas. I want you to see this as our celebration or our party manifesto. Here's why we are going to celebrate Christmas. The incarnation brings real life first. You'll notice this word life quite a bit in this passage. The word of life in verse one. We see the word of life Uh, The life was made manifest. And then later down in verse two, we see eternal life. And so what is going on with this word life? It must be important. It comes up over and over and over again. Well, the one thing you need to know, first of all, is that John is not talking about mere biological life, but about something else, really about someone else. Something I will call real life. What is real life? Well, first of all, real life is a person. Real life is personal. Notice that this real life, according to John, is personal. It's personal. Uh, And not just any person, but particularly the person of 
Jesus. The word of life is not just a message. The word of life is not just a message about Jesus, but is the person of Jesus himself. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and what? And the life. I am the life. When John says this life was manifested in verse 2, he's talking about the birth of Jesus. When John says the eternal life was with the Father or, or coexistent with the Father, he's talking about Jesus. The incarnation brings to us real life because Jesus is the life. Next, notice that this real life, according to John, is not just personal, Jesus, but physical. The eternal, verse 2, John has seen. John, in verse 1, has looked upon this eternal life. John, in verse 1, has touched with his hands this eternal life. He heard with the apostles. He saw He touched the eternal. What this means is that Jesus is not just some good idea or an answer to a philosophical problem. No, no, no. He is physical. He is a person. He is fully God. Yes, he's eternal, but he is also fully human. Real life is physical. And then real life is relational. The incarnation brings real life because it restores our relationship to God. See, our sin separates us relationally from God. And we can't bridge that relational gap. And so the only path to relationship with God, or what John calls fellowship in this passage, is if God makes it happen. We can't make it happen. We're stuck in our sin. We're slaves to sin. Paul says we're dead in our sin. We can't make that relationship work. We can't do it. And that's what the incarnation proclaims. God comes to us in our sin. God comes to us in this broken world. God comes to us in our slavery. God comes to us in our darkness. Why? To restore our relationship with him. He longs for relationship with us. We broke it because of our sin, but God comes to give us fellowship. That's the incarnation. And the way he does it is by sending his son to be our representative. Okay, listen, Jesus will represent fallen humanity, us, his people, by living the life of perfect righteousness that we were called to live, but cannot and do not. He did that for us as our representative. He came also to die the death our sin deserves. He came also to rise victoriously over the enemies that we ourselves cannot defeat. Namely, death, Satan, and sin. He defeated them once and for all. We couldn't do that. Only Jesus as God could do that. Fully God and fully human. See, how can the fully divine, sinless Jesus do that unless he was also fully human? The perfect obedience that Jesus offers must be human obedience. I'm getting worked up. I can see the camera shaking. (laughs) See, our salvation hangs on the incarnation. It's everything. No incarnation, no eternal life. I love John, the apostle, for refusing to give this up. I love him for doing this. He refuses to give up 
on the incarnation in the earliest years of the church. Because he, in his understanding, no incarnation, no life. This Christmas, we gave our kids a great game. Uh, the only problem was it didn't have batteries. And without the batteries, I mean, this may be obvious to all of you, without batteries, the game is useless. It abs- it's like the engine of the game. Uh, that's how the incarnation works. Without it, everything collapses. Incarnationless Christianity is a Christianity without the batteries. And we are left in our sins. Christianity is not an idea that helps, but a person, fully God, fully human, who saves. Salvation is not just one of many therapeutic options out there for our self-care. Salvation is a person who created all things and became what he created to save it. Think about this. What other religion or philosophy of life can you touch and see the message? In what other in what other approach to life do you actually have relationship with the message? Jesus himself. In what other way of life does God do all the saving? See, the incarnation alone brings real life. God comes to us as one of us to save us. So celebrate Christmas this year. Celebrate it. Why? Because the incarnation brings eternal life, real life. But there's another reason John gives us. The incarnation brings fellowship, real fellowship. Look at verse three, where John tells us that the incarnation can bring fellowship with God and with others. This word fellowship that John uses is koinonia, and it's a profoundly intimate term. And John says it is ours if our faith is in Jesus. So first, the incarnation brings fellowship or relationship with God. So how can sinners and rebels against the holy God have deep intimacy with him? Uh, Incarnation. Incarnation. That's how. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. There's incarnation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus, as fully divine, was perfectly obedient, even when it meant death on a cross. But because God is also fully human, this perfect obedience was human obedience. And so Jesus, as human, is able to be our representative. And because Jesus is fully divine, his obedience is perfect for us. And all who trust in Jesus have Jesus as their representative. Jesus takes us to the Father, listen carefully, and says, everything that is mine is theirs. And so we enjoy the same fellowship that Jesus has with his Father, with him. That's unbelievably impossible without the incarnation. The incarnation brings fellowship, real relationship with God. 
And secondly, in flowing from this, the incarnation brings fellowship, deep relationship with others. This is a treasure that John guards and hopes to pass down along generations. When our faith is in Jesus, we have fellowship with the triune God. And because we are united to Jesus and have fellowship with the triune God, we therefore have fellowship with all who are trusting in Jesus and have fellowship with the triune God. In other words, we don't just get God on our own. I know some of you wish that were true, um, myself included sometimes. But the truth is that when we have our faith in Jesus, we have a family who also has their faith in Jesus. This is called the fellowship of the saints. And John guards it and John proclaims it in this verse. When I married Josie, I not only became her husband, but I also became a brother to her brother and a brother to her sister. Her family became my family by virtue of my new relationship uh, to my wife, by virtue of my marriage. And the same is true of the Buckeyes, right? The Buckeyes. When I became married to Josie, I became a Buckeye fan with an asterisk because I was I didn't go to Ohio State, but I have a little asterisk next to my name that says I was I'm an engrafted Buckeye by virtue of my marriage to a Buckeye. And when I when I got married to Josie, um, I became a Buckeye fan. I started watching Ohio State games I never did before. And I started wanting them to win. And what I realized is that I didn't just become a fan personally, but I joined this nebulous thing called Buckeye Nation, which exists in kind of a, a, a sort of crazy frenzy across the, the world. And now I'm part of that. So I'm a part of, of not only liking the Buckeyes, but, but becoming a part of a greater uh, group. And that's true of, what, of Jesus on the infinite level. When you place your trust in Jesus, you get fellowship with God, but also fellowship with all of God's people. If your faith is in Jesus, the two closest relationships in your life are with God and with God's people. Koinonia, fellowship. In this time of isolation, this this is good news. I encourage you in this time of isolation to expand your knowledge of the depths of your fellowship with God. Find good books. As you read scripture, as many of you are going to embark on reading the scriptures uh, in this coming year, as you do that, take notes and say, this, this expounds, this, this helps me understand the, the depth of my fellowship with God. And then do the same with your fellowship with others. Remind yourself often that you have brothers and sisters, not just across this city, not just across this nation, and not just across this globe, but across time as well. I mean, you have John the Apostle as a brother in Christ. I mean, that's what he says in verse 4. We're writing these things so our joy may be made complete. In other words, John wants more to be added so that more can be in the party, so that more can have fellowship, not just with God, but with the church. I mean, do you view, even do you even view your faith as a relational faith? Or do you see it only as an obligation or a personal thing? You, maybe, maybe if you're like me, you're tempted to view your faith as a sort of philosophy that figures out life. It's kind of just like a, a bare, a bare facts worldview. And I don't, and I, and I can push out. It certainly is a way to look at the world, but I can push out the relational aspects. The fact that I'm in relationship and fellowship with the living God by virtue of my union with Jesus, I can lose that because I start to think of my faith as just simply rules to live by 
And I just wonder, have you tasted fellowship? Have you tasted it? Do you know what it feels like to be like John, the beloved of Jesus, to be loved by him, to be in relationship to him? How do you get that relationship? Maybe you've never been told. What you do is very much what we did in this worship service. You simply own, you lay down your arms in confession of sin and you say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I'm done following myself and I'm ready to follow you. And when that happens, the scriptures promise you, they promise you that you will receive the spirit, which makes your heart cry out, Abba, Father, your, your heart will be made new and made fresh so that you will now see the beauties of Jesus and you will now have fellowship with the living God. What if everything you have been searching for in life and in love is only met in Jesus and fellowship with him? What if that is what you're searching for? And I would encourage you to go to him this morning. Have you experienced fellowship with the living God, that's what Jesus gives you. That's the incarnation, and that's worth celebrating. And that brings us to the third point, which is that incarnation brings real joy. Look again at verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. From this little verse, we see a lot of things about the nature of Christian joy. We see, first of all, that real joy is divinely, uh, it's divinely sourced. It's divine in its source. Note the passive tense of verse four. This means that God gives this joy. It's not something that we gin up on ourselves. It's not a circumstantial happiness that comes from our circumstances around us. All of that is sort of just sort of like we're living in a biodome and we have to figure out joy. No, no, no. John cracks open the biodome and says, no, true joy comes from heaven. True joy comes from above. True joy comes from God. And the only way to have true joy is not by circumstances or manipulating your life so that you feel at peace. That's not how you get it. You get it from God. It's divine. Real joy is divine. It's also safeguarded. It's safe. It's the safest thing we have. Uh, Lucinda Williams, one of my favorite singers, she has a great breakup song called You Stole My Joy and I Want It Back. Well, the song's called Joy, I think. But the main line in it that she sings over and over and over again is, You stole my joy, and I want it back. And here's what I want to say. It's impossible to lose your joy if if we're talking about the joy that John is talking about. One scholar says, quote, In John's theology, it is impossible to take away this joy from the true believer. Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. Certainly don't take the scholar's word for it. Listen to Jesus. In John 16, 22, he says, Now is your time of grief, speaking of, of course, to the disciples, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And listen, no one will take away your joy. And then a chapter later in John 17, verse 13, he says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy Within them. Those three phrases are like bombs. The full measure of my joy within them. Has that registered yet in your in your heart and soul right now? The full measure of Jesus' joy. Not a bit, not a little bit. Not even most of it. The full measure 
of Jesus' joy, of my joy, not some circumstantial joy. We're talking about Jesus, the Lord Jesus' joy within them, within those who have faith in Jesus. Do you hear what Jesus has to say to you this morning? He gives the full measure of his joy within you. And no one can take that away from you. No circumstance can take that away from you. Satan can't take that away from you. Your boss can't take that away from you. Nobody can steal this joy. Why? Because it's the joy of Jesus. That's why. It's his joy. And then thirdly, real joy is shared. John is after joy. John is after joy. Uh, And not just my joy, but our joy. Do you see that uh, in our verse 4? He says, our joy. This is a shared joy, according to John, that he wants to be completed or perfected. How does, he, how does that happen? By talking about and sharing and proclaiming the incarnation of Jesus. Because John knows that the more people learn about this incarnation, the more people taste fellowship with Jesus, the more joy. When I was younger, I used to hoard the things I loved. I've, I've talked to you about this before. If I discovered a band I really like, uh, the, the more unknown and obscure the band is, in my mind, the better the band was. Um, I didn't want to know, I didn't want others to know about the things I loved. It would spoil my, in a weird way, it would spoil my enjoyment of these bands. And so when in college, Death Cab for Cutie went from obscure kind of indie band in uh, Bellingham, Washington to, to mainstream, I sort of watched them go mainstream. And as they watched them go mainstream, I stopped listening to them, not because they got worse, uh, it just spoiled my joy. I, I thought these, these folks, I only know about them. My friends don't know about them, but as soon as they're on like the soundtrack to Grey's Anatomy, it's like, I'm, it's over. It's done. No more death cab. Like it's over. Why? Because I wanted them to myself. That's the sort of weird um, logic I had and still continue to have sometimes with music. But it's the opposite with John and the apostles. And I need to, I need to ask God to grow my heart to be that way. Uh, We want to share our joys. How much more infinitely is joy of knowing Jesus? We don't keep Jesus to ourselves. We share him. And so when we share him, our joy, the logic of John is, expands with each new follower of Jesus. It grows and it can't ever be taken away. John wants more to join the party. Because this joy is real. Have you tasted it? Have you tasted the real joy? The capital J joy of Jesus? Or are you confusing the capital J joy of Jesus with small happinesses or small conveniences? Happinesses and conveniences are good things, but they are not the deep rest. They are not the contentment. And they are not what I will call the settled mirth that is often discovered when things around you in your life are crashing. I learned what these famous words meant when I went through uh, some extreme difficulty nine years ago. The quote goes like this, in the cellars of affliction, that is where God stores his choicest wine. In other words, all of that is true because of incarnation. The joy of Jesus is ours, even when the world is falling apart. And so I want you to bring the incarnation into the new year. I want you to celebrate the life, 
the fellowship and the joy that the incarnation brings. I want you to party uh, in Jesus' name about the incarnation. And I want you to continue to reflect on it. I want you to continue singing songs about it. That's why we're singing Christmas songs this week. That's why we're going to be singing Christmas songs next week. Because may we be a church who celebrates Christmastide, the incarnation. Not because it's mere tradition, but because we can't help it. The incarnation is that good. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of what you have done on Christmas morning when the eternal word became touchable, hearable, became flesh so that we might have eternal life. Open our hearts to worship this Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.